The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the first chapter. Glory to you. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to God Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Who is Ahaz and why is he in my Christmas story? This morning I want to focus on our reading from Isaiah because it is now firmly entrenched in our Christmas narrative. It's one of the proof texts that uh, Matthew himself cites in our reading from Matthew 1 that sort of proves the messiahship of Jesus Christ. It's a text that we mostly take for granted at this point. It's sort of like, cool, Isaiah knew about Jesus 700 years before. This whole Christianity thing, it must be true. The problem is that any unbeliever with an axe to grind who ends up studying this passage will find out a few things that even many Christians may not know. One is that Matthew only quotes this one verse from Isaiah 7, and he, he does sort of lift it out of a context to prove a larger point about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Another is that the word used here for virgin should probably in the Hebrew be translated as maiden. And so there have been many, many disputes and debates about the translation of that word and how it ends up in the Greek to be the word that it is, used by Matthew and so forth. But the third is that we really don't know when or where this sign that Isaiah offered to Ahaz was fulfilled. The Bible doesn't actually answer that question. And the larger question is, what good would it have done Ahaz to have a sign that doesn't take place for 700 years? That's a pretty weak sign. And so who does that help exactly? So it wouldn't be hard for a skeptic or even a Christian who really wants to understand what the Bible teaches about uh, Jesus and the Christmas narrative, uh, you know, to have their doubts or to have their suspicions that Matthew is using this text inappropriately. So let's look at Isaiah 7 and see if it holds up to scrutiny. There are a few things that 
we need to know first, and I want to take nothing for granted. So first is that Isaiah was a prophet for the Hebrew people. When he spoke the word of God, he was literally speaking the words of God that had been communicated to him. At the time that Isaiah is doing his ministry, the Hebrew people had been divided into really two nations. The northern nation is named Israel, and the southern nation is named Judah. In the northern nation, there are ten of the twelve tribes, and in the southern nation, there are only two, one of which being Judah, hence the term Judah, and then the Romans call them the Judeans, and that's where we get the word Jew, which is why I normally say Hebrew people to describe the full 12 tribes. Anyway, Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, in the southern kingdom in Judah is Jerusalem and the temple and all of the temple sacrifices. The problem is that the the north and the south didn't get along. They were always at war. And the exact situation of Isaiah 7 is that you have Ahaz in the south and the Israel in the north, and Israel has partnered with Syria. Okay, And Syria and Israel want to wage war with Judah because they fear over here, looking at it backwards, they fear over here the Assyrians are coming. Uh-oh, so we need to get control of the whole piece of land here. That includes Judah. And so we're going to partner so that we're ready when Assyria comes. But it's a shame that Ahaz was not a good man. He was not a good Hebrew. He was not a good king. He sensed the danger of the Assyrians too. So you know what he did? He made a deal with them. He made, paid homage to their gods. He did obeisance to their gods, right? So he was an idolater. He worshiped pagan gods so that he could have a political and military alliance with the Assyrians. So that if they invaded, They'd go invade the north, and they'd leave Judah and Jerusalem safe. And so that's where we find ourselves in Isaiah 7. Okay, We know that Ahaz is an idolater. We know that he worshiped false gods. And what God says to Isaiah is, go to King Ahaz and share with him good news. This is a man, by the way, fully unworthy of good news. And yet... Here is the prophet to bring Ahaz good news. And the good news is that the Lord will not allow Judah to be destroyed by these two kingdoms, Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim. You'll see that word a lot. You saw it in our psalm today. In fact, Ephraim is another word for Israel, the northern tribes, and then Syria. And so to prove this, Isaiah says to Ahaz, I will give you a sign. And in fact, he says, it can be any sign you want. You can choose the sign. It can be from Hades or heaven. Now, this is as close as I remember any passage in the Bible to being like a, a genie being found, coming out of a bottle and granting three wishes. All right? Isaiah literally says, any sign you want, pick a sign, any sign. And it will be a sign to you that Judah will not be destroyed by the Israel and Syrian military uh, uh, conflict brewing. Now, God knows what he's doing. This allowance of a sign is meant to put Ahaz on the spot. Ahaz wasn't maybe known as an idolater to everyone yet. 
So the problem for Ahaz now is that if he agrees to the sign, right, from Isaiah, then it's letting all of his Assyrian friends know that he still believes in Yahweh and trusts in Yahweh, the God to the Hebrews. If he does not ask for the sign, then it's a public rebuke of Yahweh. And now there's no doubt that he's an idolater and he does not believe and trust in Yahweh anymore. So however Ahaz answers this, this offer of a sign, it's bad. He's either going to make his fellow Hebrews mad or he's going to make the Assyrians mad. So Ahaz is very clever. He feigns piety by saying, I will not ask. I will not put Yahweh to the test. In other words, oh, I would never put God to the test by demanding a sign. I'm too much of a believer in Yahweh for that. Of course, Isaiah offered the sign, so it was not putting God to the test at all. And so you see the problem, right? He, he feels free to worship false gods. He feels free to be an idolater. But, oh, he pretends he won't put God to the test for a sign. And that is why Isaiah responds by seeing by saying, oh, here, house of David, is it too little for you to make men weary that you should also make my God weary? In other words, you make men weary with your idolatry. Those time and energy-consuming worship of false gods, oh, but now you wish to save God some trouble. Isaiah is mocking Ahaz to his face. So with all of that as the background, we now get to our Christmas verse that Matthew plucks from Isaiah, verse 14. Uh, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin is with child, and she is about to give birth to a son, and she shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. Now, how is it that Matthew pulled that verse out of that story 700 years before Jesus, as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, a word on how we are to understand Old Testament signs. And this is very important for this, but similar discussions along these lines. In general, signs in the Old Testament are multifaceted. They, They speak of something immediate, but they also, in some cases, speak of something Later to come, they are a foreshadowing of something larger to come. Now, a few times, signs are not about anything immediate at all. Like Micah, for example, speaks of uh, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. That did not have an immediate context. It was only looking to the birth of Jesus. But in general, there are immediate and then later consequences. So think, for example, of the story where Moses puts a bronze serpent on a pole. Okay, If you remember the story... The Israelites had been disobedient to God, and God sends snakes to them, and they're being bitten by snakes and dying. And so Moses pleads for the people, and God says, put a bronze serpent on a pole, hold it, and anyone who looks on it, having been bitten by a snake, will not die. Now that had immediate consequences. It worked. And yet the serpent, of course, the craftiest of all, right? the, 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 the serpent who led us into sin, in the first place, that whole story points to something else, and we learn that in John. So uh, John writes in the Gospel of John, just as Moses uh, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, thus it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up, 
so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. All right, so Old Testament sign, right? But you see the way it's full fulfillment comes with Jesus Christ himself going to the cross and the fact that you have the serpent from Genesis on ties it all together. Likewise, during Isaiah's day, even though Israel was surrounded by military forces, there was to be given this sign. A son would be born to a young woman. His name would be Emmanuel. And this was a sign that Judah, the southern kingdom under siege, was to be saved from military dangers. And we do believe that there was a child born in the time of Ahaz, and that it was assigned to King Ahaz that Judah would not be defeated. And he was named, or nicknamed at least, Emmanuel. That child really was born. But he was not born in a miraculous way. He was born to a woman, as children have always been born to women. We're almost done. Don't worry. So this is what Matthew does. Very quick summary. And bring it all to an end quickly. This is what Matthew does. He says, aha, I seem to recall a prophecy regarding King Ahaz. And some of these bits of this story are feeling very familiar, right? You have a young woman who gives birth to a boy, and we believe he is literally God with us. Not God is with us to help win a military battle, but God has come to us in human flesh. So I see what you did there, God. In your wisdom, you provided us a story 700 years before Jesus that would be fulfilled in Christ. Again, the only difference is that the birth of Jesus is not only a sign, it also is a miracle. So who is Ahaz, and why is he included in my Christmas story? Ahaz was a sinner who trusted in false gods and false promises, just like you do, and just like I do. And Ahaz was a man surrounded by enemies and demons and men and warriors who wanted to destroy him and his city and his culture and his way of life, just like we are. And in the midst of that, Ahaz was given the promise that a baby boy would be born And this boy was a sign that God would not let his city or the Davidic line be destroyed. Matthew understood that in Jesus Christ, we also have been given a promise. Only it is not an invading army from which we have been saved. He is truly God with us, God in human flesh, who has taken on all of the forces of darkness and defeated them by his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension. So who is Ahaz? He is you and he is me. And to all of us, a child has been given, Emmanuel. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. 
In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, but they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A common theme of Christmas movies is that the real winners of the season are those who still believe. The lesson seems to be that those of us who have become cynical adults and have long stopped believing in certain fairy tales ought to retain our childlike naivete, keeping open the possibility of elves and unicorns and the like. In the movies, if you only believe, then this impossible world will all of a sudden become available to you. The Polar Express, a movie I really don't like, but it's okay if you do. Uh, It's a prime example of this, right? So the entire story hangs on whether the boy can overcome his uh, growing doubts and retain his belief in Santa Claus. It's as though Hollywood understands the power of belief and the mystery of the supernatural. It's, it's as though movie producers understand that a full and deep meaning of life is found precisely in those things that is beyond mere logical expression. And yet, faith in Christ never ends up in these movies. The correct object of our belief or hope or faith, Santa is usually the best that they can come up with. 
There are more sophisticated ways, of course, of communicating this same message, which I would argue sort of permeates throughout our culture. It's the message that hope or faith themselves are worthwhile, even if the object of our hope or faith is misplaced. A few examples. This week I read of a new art installation in Los Angeles that is comprised of a a large room, mostly empty, except it has about 20 lighted mirrors of different colors. These rectangular glowing boxes are supposed to bring to mind the colors of sunrise and sunset. A newspaper review of this installation said this, Visitors to the gallery have described their experiences in the space on Instagram, calling the installation, quote, enthralling, and saying that it made them feel reflexive and meditative. Well, I looked at pictures of the exhibit, and granted, you know, you really have to experience art firsthand, but I was trying to figure out what they were supposed to be reflecting or meditating upon. They were looking in mirrors, so maybe they were meditating upon themselves. It strikes me that there is no there there. It's kind of like the story of the teenagers a few years ago who, as a prank, put their eyeglasses on the floor and people thought it was part of the exhibit. They started taking pictures of eyeglasses on the floor. Anyway, you're supposed to leave the installation with an impression of some kind. Maybe you're supposed to be reminded of a significant event in your life or something, but I struggle to understand how an empty room with colored mirrors can actually communicate anything of any great value at all. In our own city, dare I mention an icon that to criticize would probably be seen as gauche. What the heck, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, there is a certain chapel, you see, that's little more than a mostly empty room with some black paintings on it. You're supposed to fill that room with your thoughts and meditations. To be fair, most even Christian architecture has gone this minimalist route in the 20th century But I guess in quiet meditation you find inner peace or you hear something from some god or another. I don't know. It didn't do anything for me. Those are some of the more sophisticated ways, you see, of saying that to simply believe in something, nothing in particular is fine, that's the most important thing. Like the boy on his voyage to the North Pole. Just be open to possibilities. That's good enough. Fill in the blanks with whatever you like. If you don't, the movie producers say, you'll die on the inside. You'll lose all sense of wonder. You'll grow cynical and lifeless, joyless and enslaved to mere consumerism and survival. Well, I disagree. Not with the ideas that belief and faith are good things. They surely are. But I disagree with the object of faith that others propose. You see, Christians have a tremendous advantage when it comes to the topic of faith. We don't tell people to look within, to stare in a mirror, We don't ask people to believe in things that are patently false, 
as though there is some value in believing in something that is obviously untrue. To believe in things that are patently false is just unwise. No, what we say is that we do believe in the supernatural. We do believe in God. And we do believe in some things that other people consider unbelievable. But we also point to certain events located at certain times in history. We point to prophecies spoken centuries before their fulfillment. We speak to the consistent message of the God of Adam and Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus and his apostles. We look at the crucifixion and the resurrection and we say the same things that the apostles said. For example, we would say to not believe in God is really, in the most technical sense of the word, absurd. Without God, there would be nothing. And unless you are prepared to reduce your existence to nothing, and sadly very many people are actually, then a timeless, powerful, intelligent, creative God must exist. It isn't wishful thinking or fancy to believe that. It is, in fact, the beginning of all logic. And second, in the person of Jesus Christ, we see God in the flesh. If you want to know what God has to say about things, then we look to the whole of Scripture, certainly including the Old Testament Scriptures, and their fulfillment in Christ. We don't need black walls to stare at, or colored mirrors to look into, or guided meditation, unless, of course, we're meditating on the scriptures themselves. We have real people and real events that serve as the objects of our faith. We don't hope in hope, and we don't have faith in faith. We do not believe that any belief so long as it just pushes us beyond ourselves or our experience is good. In fact, there are many beliefs that are dreadful and even outright evil. We believe in beliefs that find their fullness and completion in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is that completion, that fulfillment, that we celebrate at Christmas not merely the birth of Jesus, that's the historical event that we can point to. The much bigger picture is that the object of our hope and the object of our faith is the God of the universe who became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, he died a sinless death, and he was risen from the dead. And that is why the dis disciplines of our faith are usually not silent meditation or staring into neon mirrors or mere contemplation. Rather, our disciplines revolve around knowing Jesus better, finding him in his word, corporate worship where we speak and sing and speak to one another, and praying, of course, to Jesus as a real and true and living person. 
So believe to be sure. Belief is good. Faith is good. Hope is good. Believe, absolutely. Don't grow old and cynical. Don't become an unbeliever. Believe even in strange and supernatural things that many others will say is fabricated nonsense. That's fine. Just know that the object of your faith is the God who became flesh, a God who revealed himself, a God who can be known. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. Not the idea that belief in and of itself is a good thing, but rather that belief in the God who became flesh is the best thing. Amen.